So, Mark, what's up, Doc? <laughs> the movie we're discussing this week <laughs> features an extended comic chase scene through the hills of San Francisco. Indeed it does. A chase that took up fully one quarter of this movie's budget. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. That's honestly not surprising, but I think it's honestly money well spent. Yeah. It's a good sequence. Anyway... In light of that, I was wondering what your favorite chase sequence from a movie is. So, in terms of comedy chase sequences, only one movie that I can think of features Carrie Fisher shooting a rocket launcher at a car, and that is the film The Blues Brothers. Which I have never seen. I haven't watched it in a long time. I enjoyed it when I watched it, and I very much enjoyed Carrie Fisher's escalating attempts to kill one of the Blues Brothers for scorning her in the past. And there's a lot of chase scenes. One involves Nazis. They make a lot of people mad at them. And at some point, Carrie Fisher has a rocket launcher, and I'm very into it. So my favorite is also a comedy one, and that's from the 1979 movie The In-Laws with Peter Falk and Alan Arkin. And we could spend all day here explaining the plot of The In-Laws because it is incredibly and deliberately convoluted. But... The two of them wind up driving down a highway in a made-up Central American country, being chased by some, like, government guys who want to kill them. And they're driving down the highway, and they just wind up, keep trying to do U-turns on the highway, so they're just driving in circles, uh, cutting across the median over and over again, and it's excellent. That sounds very fun. It's wonderful. I was looking at a list of chase scenes, and number seven on IMDb is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And at first I was like... Oh, the monkey scene. Right. And at first I was like, that's dumb. And then I remembered the chase scenes in that movie were actually pretty cool, because they also featured Kate Blanchett in a severe chop wig shooting at indiana jones um in the chase sequence in the jungle she is having a sword fight with shia labeouf where they're standing in different cars yes it is actually a very good chase scene movie even if it has some flaws that's such a weird movie i rewatched it over the summer and it's just that thing where like there's some real artistry here but it also doesn't work It's a movie I really want to like because there are elements of it that I really enjoy. But every time I watch it, I'm disappointed at the overall feel. Like he survives a nuclear explosion in a refrigerator. That I am fine with. I enjoy it every time because I do not need logic in an Indiana Jones movie. It's a pulp movie. The Ark of the Covenant is a thing that exists. Clearly it is a different world. Well, I mean, the Ark may have existed, but I don't know about the face-melting powers, because that doesn't even seem to have a lot of biblical support. Yeah, they seem to have made that up. The fun thing about the uh, fridge explosion thing is that that idea was taken from an early draft of Back to the Future, the subject of a future two-hour episode of this podcast. You know, at first, when we were averaging like 30 to 45 minutes per episode and you were making that joke, it felt so long. Now that some of our episodes on movies that are barely 90 minutes are stretching to 90 minutes, it's feeling much more plausible. I was always serious. I know you were always serious, but... Back in the days of much shorter episodes, I was like, I can't imagine doing this show for two hours. And we recently recorded our episode about Pool Boy Nightmare, and that movie is 86 minutes, and I think our episode will probably come out to be at least an hour. Oh, easily. (laughs) 
Anyway, yeah, in the original, or at least an early draft of Back to the Future, they, like, didn't have the lightning bolt element of it to power the car. So in figuring out how to get the nuclear reaction to send the car back in time, they had to, like, drive it to a nuclear test site or something and, like, survive a nuclear explosion. And it involved Marty McFly being in a refrigerator. Were refrigerators ever actually made of lead? Because isn't They're that the idea? They are? Okay. I don't really like the idea of lead being that close to my food and water. It's what gives it the extra spice. A little zest. Well, I mean, that is a fairly common thing throughout history, because apparently it does taste good. So, it seems in Rome that they knew lead was bad for you, but they still would put it in things to make it taste better. I mean, I go to McDonald's, like, that's what humans do. <laughs> you know, I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, anyway, so, should we start talking about this movie? Because it was extremely wild. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Okay, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast committed to examining one of the least important issues facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot, or if it's a one-scene flirtation, or if it just, like, is started immediately on very little pretense and is immediately intense uh and we will dig in and see what's there so this week we are taking a look at the 1972 peter bogdanovich comedy starring barbara streisand madeline khan and ryan o'neill what's up doc i kind of wish we had watched this closer to bringing up baby We've got to talk about bringing up Baby because this is very clearly pulling on that tradition. I think Bogdanovich was pretty open about his inspiration coming from this type of movie, but he would single out bringing up Baby in particular. Absolutely. That also was the core of Pauline Kael's vigorous criticism of this movie because she said that film was too new a medium to be cannibalizing itself so vigorously. I wonder how she would have felt about that Disney press conference that was yesterday as of recording. Yeah, we're speaking the day after Disney announced, like, 30 new Marvel and Star Wars projects. I don't think I have read any of the actual projects, except for the Buzz Lightyear one, which is extremely confusing. I think it's the backstory of the, like, fictional character Buzz Lightyear, of which toys exist. But... That basically exists in the cartoon Buzz Lightyear, A Star Command. Yeah, uh, Mark, I'm going to tell you, nobody remembers that cartoon. (laughs) I remember. I watched a lot of that show. I don't know why. It was likely on in the, like, 30-minute period after school when I was eating my snack where I was allowed to watch TV before doing my homework. Yeah, that's the kind of thing that you can just ignore because nobody really remembers it. Well, maybe it was on also around the same time as Disney's House of Mouse, which I watched again for the same reason where it was in that window at about 2.30 when I came home from school because elementary school in Georgia ends obscenely early. The big one of those that got me was Jonathan Majors, who I have vocally loved since Last Black Man in San Francisco, being cast as Kang the Conqueror in Ant-Man 3, who is my favorite silly Avengers villain. I have a feeling that some good things and some bad things will come out of this new spate of intellectual property. We can just, <laughs> that is, we that can just is clip out that track stance. and just drop it anytime we talk about new announcements. Yeah, that is my bold stance, because I feel pretty confident in saying that. 
about all media. But anyway, as you said, Peter Bogdanovich did very openly say that he was inspired by the screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s, especially bringing up Baby. He actually talked about that from the initial premise of the movie. Um, Barbara Streisand saw an early print of The Last Picture Show and was like, hi, I want to work with you. And when he was talking with Warner Brothers about what that might be, he pitched the idea of a 30s or 40s screwball comedy. And that's what they ran with. I think this is actually a very good use of Barbara Streisand for a movie where she only sings the credits, essentially. Uh, She also sings As Time Goes By in the middle of the movie. Yes, she does. But it's definitely her least singy role of any movie I've seen her in. Yeah, she also was kind of wary of doing a straight comedy. She had wanted to do a drama with Bogdanovich, and by all accounts, she and Ryan O'Neill, who hadn't really done comedy before, were not super comfortable with the genre. You can't really tell. because No, I think it, they work really well. Both of them work, and I love any movie where Barbara Streisand is shown in strong profile, because... It's actually a pretty radical statement every time it's done, especially this early in her career, too. I mean, she already has an Oscar at this point. Well, I mean, she came out, she hit the ground running in her career. Yeah. Wasn't her Oscar, like, her first movie? And she tied with Catherine Hepburn? Funny Girl is the movie that she tied with Catherine Hepburn for in The Lion in Winter. Uh, And you're right, it is her film debut. Yeah, so (laughs) I think you can still say What's Up Doc is early in her career, even if she has had a legacy career. Coming off of Broadway. Coming off of Broadway. But this movie, I did not realize until the opening credits, is Madeline Kahn's first full feature-length film, too. Yeah, that and introducing Madeline Kahn. We love the introducing credit. I love it introducing, because that just shows you're very confident in an actor that you have discovered, in a way. Right, this person's gonna be a star. And she was. I could tell from the moment she opened her mouth, I was like, thank God, this is a full Madeline Kahn role from She's my favorite performance in the movie. Oh, yes. I mean, that was not going to be in question for me. She's my favorite performance in every movie I have seen her in. At some point over the summer, I decided that, at least for that run, sketch comedy was like the best TV of quarantine. And I wound up watching a lot of The Carol Burnett Show on Amazon Prime. And seeking out the Madeline Kahn appearances and just watching those is such a treat. Have you seen History of the World Part 1? I have not. She plays a Roman empress in that, and she gives... Such a loud performance, including a Roman empress being introduced chewing bright pink bubblegum. Good. So I was very excited to see from the moment she opened her mouth. I was like, okay, so she is being used as she is used in Young Frankenstein, basically to a T. And I loved every minute of it. So what's interesting about this one versus bringing up baby is that like in bringing up baby, we have a hapless professor and a fast-talking lunatic who is trying to lure him into a relationship. And I think one of the big differences is that in Bringing Up Baby, Alice Swallow is in, like, the first scene and then seen again at the prison. Like, she's barely in the movie to the point that you kind of forget about her. She's just an abstract obstacle. She's the abstract thing that Cary Grant is always trying to get back to. Whereas in this, Madeline Kahn is there in the whole movie, which I think makes the Streisand character's actions worse, or at least worse for me as an audience member, because I have to watch all of the ways that she's humiliated over and over again. I think that's very fair, but I actually found that Barbara Streisand's character 
Judy had more motivation for pursuing the man than Captain Hepburn's character because she's trying to score a free meal. So at the end of it, money is a more powerful motivator in my mind than deciding you're in love with someone you've never talked to. Wait, it's in this one that she decides that she's in love with him like immediately. She does, but she's also there more to get him to buy her things because she's poor. Like, she finds out that the room is empty so that she can crash in the room. She wants him to buy her the expensive thing. I think it's a radio. Yeah. Like, she's there to con him as well as kind of deciding that she's in love with him. And honestly, I appreciate a con artist in film. Sure. My thing is, at least, like, in bringing up Baby, they, like, spent a good chunk of the day together trying to get him the grant from that, like, foundation dude before the next morning she has the tiger and she's like hi come help me with the tiger and then decides she's in love with him yeah in this it's very quick i was very confused at a lot of points in this movie i think i lost the thread sometimes well the movie has two halves that don't interact a ton until they kind of explode onto each other in chaos right and i will say my favorite part of the movie is all the suitcase hijinks yeah I love love all the stuff, like, going back and forth, switching suitcases, going back and forth, everyone, like, trying to backtrack on one another. Frankly, I wish there had been more of that in the movie. You know, we start off with the Michael Murphy character having gotten the suitcase with the top secret files that he's put on the top of the suitcase, as one does with classified information that you've stolen. And I was like, okay, so this is going to be a, like, Cold War spycraft hijinks comedy. And for the most part, that's just happening in the background behind maniac Barbara Streisand. I wish we had gotten more of the stolen documents part of it because the movie opens with that mostly and watching the man dumping his golf clubs as he's trying to walk up the hills in San Francisco. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. And I would love more of his bumbling attempts to capture the spy. Right. Those are all of my favorite moments. Like the other one besides dumping the golf clubs is when the one guy has to stop the old woman from getting to her room, so he keeps tripping her over and over and over again. (laughs) This movie really goes in on the repeating something until it's not funny and then bringing it back, like, doing it long enough that I started to find it funny again. It becomes funny again because of the just steadfast commitment to it. Right, like, how many times they miss the glass in the chase sequence? I was like, okay, I get it, they're gonna miss the glass, but that eventually, when you get the payoff, I did laugh again. So, like I said, the movie cost $4 million, $1 million of that is spent on the chase sequence, which also took up, like, a third of their shooting days. And the, like, going back and forth on the hills is based on an action sequence from, like, a recent action movie called Bullet. But they also just did, like, a bunch of crazy stuff where, for example, they didn't have enough stunt cars. So Bogdanovich just rented cars and bought the highest level of insurance that was available from the rental agency and proceeded to smash them to bits. Oh my god. They also, like, they had a shooting permit for San Francisco. But they did not have, like, permission to drive down the steps in Alta Plaza Park. And they permanently damaged those steps. If you look in the shot in the movie, you can see the cars, like, taking out chunks of concrete. Oh my god. I was very distracted during the chase, I have to say, because I kept trying to see if I could find either my cousin's or Nick's house in the city. Because 
Nicola's very close to Lombard Street where it does that switch back. So whenever they were getting close, I was like, oh, can I see where he is? Can I see where he is? But no, unfortunately, his house is downhill and hidden. So I couldn't find the street it was on. Alas. Alas. So this movie, we should note, was a huge hit. It was the third highest grossing movie of 1972. It made $66 million dollars. In 1972, which is just a ton of money, the two movies that beat it out at number one were The Godfather and number two, The Poseidon Adventure. What a list. Honestly, wild to imagine a movie like The Godfather being the number one movie at the box office. Yeah, that's not something that would happen these days. But also, I can't imagine this movie I mean, doing if, that like, well. Yeah, I mean, the closest thing is, like, if you think about The Godfather as, like, a crime movie, like, in a not-pandemic year, like, a Christopher Nolan movie has a shot at that. Yeah, that is true. I do love a good crime movie every so often. What's the one? I think it's called Inside Man. Spike Lee. Spike Lee. That one is very good. I have never seen it, but I have been sporadically watching my way through Spike Lee. So I will either watch it of my own accord sometime before or get to it in a long time because he's made a lot of movies. Yeah, I think you would enjoy it because it's a very fun heist. You know, I love a good heist. I love a heist. Is there a tower involved? Unfortunately, no, just a bank. Honestly, it's probably for the best. And it has Jodie Foster in it. Well, that's good. So, in addition to its box office success, Madeline Kahn was nominated for the Golden Globe for New Star of the Year, which was a thing at the time. She lost to Diana Ross for Lady Sings the Blues. Neither of them are, like, (laughs) new stars, I'd say. They both had very big, successful careers, especially Diana Ross. Yes, but it's looking at new to movies. I know, for Phil. It's just a really interesting thing, because it's also kind of like I don't understand Best New Artist at the Grammys, because it seems to be just Best Artist that the Grammys is paying attention to for the first time, because Phoebe Bridgers is up for it, and she released a whole album in 2017, and I think it's the same record label. So well, I don't that's really, new-ish. Yeah, I guess. I just don't really understand, like, what... <laughs> What their well, the award doesn't is. exist anymore, so... Well, at the Gold Globes, the Grammy still does it. Yeah. Uh, the movie also won a WGA award for Best Comedy Screenplay, which was folded into the Best Screenplay category in 1984. And that's a screenplay written by David Benton and Robert Newman, who, of course, wrote Bonnie and Clyde. And after they had come up with a couple of drafts, John Calley, who was the head of production at Warner Brothers at the time, suggested they bring in Buck Henry, who had written The Graduate, to help out. Buck Henry showed up, read the screenplay, said, it's not complicated enough, we need a fourth suitcase. And that's when they added in the, like, whistleblower character. So originally it was just the diamonds, the rocks, and Barbara Streisand's clothes. I think they did a pretty good job with three of the suitcases being about equal weight. Because the amount of jewels in that could equal a ton of documents and a bunch of rocks. But one of the suitcases has, like, a few clothes in it. So I think you would notice the difference with that one. I'm assuming that she is like, I don't know, selling padlocks on street corners. <laughs> because one of them just has rocks in it. She goes around to the like middle schools of San Francisco and sells kids combination locks to put on their gym lockers. It's the only explanation. Any other fun facts about this movie? It's the first American movie to credit its stunt performers. Huh. I think it is a movie where the stunt performers definitely deserve a lot of credit, but quarter of the budget that should have been happening since the silent film era when people were just like being thrown off buildings with no cushions or anything. I'm sure. I mean, if you go far enough back in the silent era, they didn't credit any actors. (laughs) You know, 
touche. There's a reason Mary Pickford was known as the Biograph Girl. It's because she was the girl in movies made by Biograph, and that's all anybody knew. It's fascinating how celebrity still happened before the actors were even given names. Right, they just found ways to talk about them. People love a star. All right, so should we start digging into the romance of this movie? Yes, let's talk about this insane relationship, I guess we'll call it. (laughs) It's wild. So every week we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to help guide our conversation. The background of this is the lead character, Howard, is engaged to Madeline Kahn, whose character name is... Eunice Burns. Eunice, that is right. Is engaged to Eunice. She is very uptight very controlling of Howard, and also... She, okay, is she uptight and controlling? Yes. Does Howard also need it? Also, yes. Howard yes. is too stupid to live. Yes, you are very correct there. Howard it, does not know how to put down a glass. Yeah, Howard is made a little too helpless in this movie. And that's part of my thing, again, with the comparison to bringing up Baby, like, Cary Grant can function within his world in the movie. Like, he can do his job at the museum and, like, live as a normal person. He's thrown off by the absolute just balls-to-the-wall nature of Catherine Hepburn in that. Whereas here, it's clear that if Eunice were not around, Howard would have killed himself doing something stupid. Like, he's a Darwin Award waiting to happen. Yeah. I think Eunice would have been the better choice for Howard at the end of the film. He's gonna die! alive. The fact that he couldn't figure out how to just put those glasses down on the table, really... Right! And, like, he doesn't realize that he's shaking hands with people. Yeah, it is bizarre how helpless Howard is. The other quick early thing I want to mention, we talked about introducing Madeline Kahn. The other credit that I noticed, I mean, there's... A couple of, you know, noteworthy people. Laszlo Kovacs was the DP on it. Polly Platt did the production design. But assistant to the producer on this movie, Frank Marshall. Huh. Wow, he really worked his way up. Yeah. Always fun to uh, pay attention to the credits and see those weird ones. So... Anyway, Eunice and Howard are very prim and proper and stay in separate rooms at the hotel because they are just engaged and not married. But... Eunice has a headache after they check in and asks Howard to go buy her some headache medicine. This doesn't show up until later, but her nightgown is marvelous. It looks like she's wearing a bedspread that has been (laughs) sewn into a dress. It is the thickest thing. It's bright blue. One of my favorite parts about Eunice is I remember thinking when the movie starts, that is a ridiculous wig. And then it becomes a point in the movie that it is a wig. She wears a wig of her own hair color. Yes. And it is styled to an absurd degree. And I loved that they showed that it was a wig because it is a ridiculous haircut. Yeah. So anyway, as you said, she tasks him with getting headache medicine. And this brings us to point one where they are at the drugstore. What's up, Doc? I beg your pardon. You've got to stop meeting like this. I think you're making a mistake. You see, I just came in here for something for a headache. You're going to need an awful big glass of water to get that down. I guess we should say, at the same time, Judy is trying to sneak her way into the hotel to get a free place to stay for the night. Right, and she's already, like, ordered a room service meal and stuff like that. Right. And she has decided to follow Howard to try and use him as a meal ticket. And also, he is attractive. He is! I'll give him that! Yes, he is. And when he is just in his underwear and the bow tie... It's a full-on Chippendales look. Yeah, I was like, okay, he's he's got it going on. 
But then I looked it up, and Ryan O'Neill is an accused murderer, and I felt weird what? about it. Wait, I didn't know that. Yeah, let me find the... He is not a good person. He is the father of Tatum O'Neill, and they had a very bad relationship for a while. He hit on her at a funeral because he didn't recognize her grown up. Yikes. Um, They did grow closer at a certain point. Oh, no, it wasn't him arrested. It was another one of his children was arrested for attempted murder, robbery, assault, and drug possession, who is the son of Ryan O'Neill and Farrah Fawcett. But yes, he was still not a very good dad. <laughs> it it does seem like that. Yes. <laughs> but Tatum and Ryan O'Neill had a TV show on the Oprah Winfrey Network where they documented their reconciliation. You gotta fill programming hours. <laughs> I know. What's that you said earlier? Some of this content will be good. Some of it, <laughs> some will, of it will be bad. <laughs> I stand by it. The words just ring through the ages. <laughs> So they are at the drugstore, and Judy decides to call him Steven, I think? Steve. Steve. And shenanigans Every time she sees him, she goes, Hey, Steve! R.I.P. Flash animation is dead by the time this episode comes out. Right. And I think they put a lot on YouTube, but I'm very very sad that Homestar Runner is losing its home. Yeah. So they're at the drugstore. She she sees him through a counter and is doing her fast-talking Catherine Hepburn-esque performance. And he is very confused. And then she claims to be his wife at checkout to get him to buy her radio. But she pushed it a little far because when, when Howard is getting rung up for just aspirin, the cashier is like, all right, your total will be $84.70 or something. Right, and he clarifies that the aspirin is like, Less than a dollar. Yeah. If you want to pull that kind of grift, you need something that is in the ballpark of a plausible price. Right. And that's an insane price for a radio at that time, I feel. Oh, it's on sale. I feel like, how much is that? Gotta go to the old inflation calculator that I reference anytime we do a historical movie. It looks like a nice radio. What year is it? 1972. 72, 2020, $84. That's a $523 radio. It's a nice radio. (laughs) It is a very nice radio, it seems. Also, it's the hotel store markup. Oh, yeah. That is very valid. Having looked through a couple shops at a hotel and never purchasing anything there. Obviously. So, anyway, yeah, she is doing this, like, fast-talky kind of thing. He keeps trying to get her to leave him alone, and she will not. She actually chases him out of the store, up the escalator. He, trying to get away with her, jumps on the other escalator, which is the down escalator, so he's not very effective at getting away. But he just keeps trying to escape and also get her to stop calling him Steve, which is unfortunate because that means giving her his real name, which she can then use to pull further cons. Right. Which includes, bringing us to point two, impersonating his fiance at a banquet of musicologists. And this must be Miss Byrne. How do you do you! You, you! Eunice, Eunice, Howard. Eunice. We've almost got that stammer cured. Sit down, dear. Yeah, so he is a researcher who is trying to study prehistoric music. He's arguing that people could use igneous rocks to make different notes. So he's constantly just hitting rocks with a tuning fork. And I can't imagine that anything productive is coming. Well, it's just the kind of thing of like, even if you prove that you can make notes from rocks. His thesis also requires him to prove that cavemen did it. And I think that's going to be a harder lift. 
Yes. I guess because it's musicology and not anthropology, he can get away with just saying, like, it's possible. But there is... Yeah. Like, I I don't remember seeing the Croods do any of that. So I'm not sure where he got this idea. I feel like there can't be any possible way of proving that, except for, like, I guess a cave painting of someone hitting a rock with a tuning fork. (laughs) Interestingly, that was the first fork. They later had the idea of stabbing it into their food. Very much later. The fork wasn't a thing in, I think it originated in the Middle East in, like, the 900s. That's true, actually, yeah. It's mostly spoons for a long time. Spoons and knives. Anyway, Howard, Ryan O'Neill, is at this reception because he is a finalist to get a grant so that he can go to the south of France and study caveman rocks. But he's up against this other guy, Hugh Simon. Is he supposed to be Russian, maybe? Who's played by Kenneth Mars, doing a vague impression of, like, a Serbian accent, which is where Peter Bogdanovich was born. So he's doing, like, kind of a joke about the director, but also it is, like, all but confirmed that the character is based on John Simon, who was a, like, film and theater critic at New York Magazine, who was famous for his rudeness in person and in his reviews, particularly in, like, really rude criticisms of people's appearances. Mm. That is unnecessary in a film critic. Right. So, very much not a popular guy within that community. He had just recently panned Bogdanovich's movie, The Last Picture Show, and, like, said some obnoxious things about Barbara Streisand's appearance. So, a lot of his, like, boorishness is supposed to be based on that. That's fair. (laughs) I feel like that is a fair use of a person. Like, a character of a person. Sometimes it can get mean, but that feels fine to me. Yeah, I'm fine with it. (laughs) Uh, so Eunice is, like, at the same time trying to convince her way in, but the name tag lady is very insistent that there are no Eunice Burns name tags. Right, because Streisand, whose name is Judy Maxwell, showed up ahead of Eunice and took her name tag and went in and is, as you said, impersonating Howard's fiancé. Right. And she is incredibly charming a lot of the people there. Most importantly, Austin Pendleton as Frederick Larrabee, the guy who gives out the grant. But Howard is just getting more and more upset by this because he's trying to restore his life to a sense of normalcy and this woman is driving it into chaos. And he's trying to follow the instructions that the real Eunice had given him beforehand, which were very Which were instructions on, like, how to speak to a human because, again, Howard is too dumb to live. Yeah, it's like, shake his hand and make eye contact. Oh, Howard. Really, Eunice should never have let him go down there without her. Yeah, that's on her. But, well, she had to take care of her massive wig. That thing requires at least an hour of prep before any party. But clearly people are just wandering into this thing at any time. He could have waited. And also, she maybe should have gotten ready earlier. But she had her headache. Eunice is a very harried woman. She can't do everything she needs at the same time. Look, for a woman who is always harassing Howard about not doing things right, she is late for everything. She is. She is. I don't understand Eunice, but I love her. (laughs) Along the way at this party, as I said, Judy Maxwell impersonating Eunice endears herself to just about everybody. And it seems that she is basically going to be able to score Howard this grant. Right. And Laramie is very upfront with that, where he tells him, he's like, if you get this grant, which is possible, it is because of your fiance, Bernsey. Which Howard is like, great, I need this grant. It cost me a lot of money to get here. And... 
I need to be able to do my research. And he commits to that to the point that Howard commits, like, the one really bad thing that he does in the movie, which is Eunice successfully forces her way into the reception, dragging somebody behind her on the floor. Yeah, that name tag woman was very insistent on not letting someone crash a musicology banquet. Right. It was the kind of thing that feels like, you know... It feels plausible that they would just, like, let this woman in and, like, take the chance that they let in someone they weren't supposed to. Yeah, that's what I would have done. She, like, hauls herself in bit by bit, dragging this name tag lady on the floor behind her. And she gets up to Howard and is like, Howard, won't you tell them who I am? I'm your fiancé, Eunice. And Howard looks at her straight in the eye and says, I have no idea who this woman is. And I would say that's the worst thing he does in the movie. I think the worst thing he does is send her to a fake address where gangsters are beating up a someone and she gets taken hostage. No, Judy sends her there. Oh, yes. Sorry, I lost the thread a few times. The worst thing that Judy does could be one of a number of things. Yeah, there are many things she does that are of questionable morality. You don't have to question it. They are immoral. But this brings us to point three, which is back in the hotel room after the banquet. What do you think you're doing? I think I'm taking a bath, aren't I? If you're not out of here, in two minutes I'm calling the police. Who do you think they'll arrest? The girl in the tub or the guy with his pants down? I am not joking now. I do not like to act rashly. But you are the last straw that breaks my camel's back. You are the plague. You, you bring havoc and chaos to everyone. But why to me? Why me? Why? Why? Because you look cute in your pajamas, Steve. Get out! Right. Howard gets back to his room. He is frustrated by Judy. He's upset that, like, he's going to be in trouble with Eunice now. Because you get the sense that that is the kind of relationship they have. Like, he would be accurately described as in trouble with her. (laughs) Yes. But he then hears Judy Maxwell speaking and realizes that she is fully naked in his bathtub. With about, like, three gallons of bubble bath. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, she is buried in many bubbles. So you can see just her face. And... Howard is in a state of undress where he hasn't taken the time to either pull up his pants or take them off. Okay, what are his clothes made of? Felt? Because they tear at the slightest touch. <laughs> and I get that it's a reference to the dress and the bringing up dress baby. and his jacket and bringing up baby, but those were much more plausible reasons to be torn. He is right, wearing like, like you tissue tap paper. Howard, his clothes fall apart. Yeah, he's like wearing tissue paper. They have a thread count of two, and so he's like, "Get out of here! I don't want you in my bathtub." He threatens to call the police, and she's like, "If you call the police and they find you with your pants down and me in the bathtub, you're the one who's gonna get arrested." But at the time, Eunice, who again is staying in a different hotel room, is now trying to confront Howard about. About what's going on a reasonable thing to do because right. he denied her existence like she's about to be tried by the sanhedrin and now she hears this lady's voice coming in from the other room right so she calls and he tries to cover it up with the classic it's just the tv thing but then judy very close to the phone uses his name and says howard Please do something. Where's your spare bathrobe? Yes. So Eunice marches her way over. And that's my thing again with Judy, where like Judy is just so aggressively pushing to deliberately break up this relationship. Whereas in bringing up baby, I feel like Cary Grant's relationship is never real to Catherine Hepburn. She's never seen Alice. She's like, let's just hang out. Like I can make him fall in love with me if we are isolated together long enough. Whereas Judy is like actively malevolent towards Eunice. Yeah, she is not good. Like, as far as I'm concerned, sending her to that other address, she basically tries to get Eunice killed. <laughs> yeah, she isn't. I just, I'm so confused about the extents Judy goes to. But Eunice shows up, and he pushes 
This actually might be the worst thing he does, because he pushes Judy out onto a thin ledge in nothing but a bathrobe. There's a ledge! Or it's a towel, actually, towel. not even a bathrobe. Yeah, bath towel. And she's standing, like, 30 stories up in an unreasonably tall building for San Francisco. I assume it is the uh, the tower from the Towering Inferno. I mean, again... It hasn't burned yet. That's two years later. It is not a city where you build very tall buildings. Except for, like, the Transamerica Tower and the Salesforce Tower. Right. It would make much more sense if this were a giant tower, like, in the middle of the ocean. A sea tower in which all manner of stories could take place. Alright. Anyway, she's out on the ledge. Eunice comes in. Somehow a fire is started when he tries to unplug the TV. Right, because, like, he's going to unplug the TV. They're like, it's a cable. So, okay, so he yanks, like, an electrical cable out of the wall that doesn't have an outlet. And that sets fire to everything and also fries the TV. It's very confusing. And that at the same time, Hugh is trying to climb up and break into the room to, like, steal his research or something. No, no. Hugh is wandering the hallways trying to just, like, see what's going on. And he sees some of that business. It's one of the, like, bag thief guys is working his way around the side of the building. Because the whole time all this romance stuff is going on, multiple different groups of people are trying to steal bags of valuable stuff. Because the movie hangs on the premise that four different people on the same hallway of a hotel have identical suitcases. Howard has one that's full of rocks that he thinks may or may not be musical. Judy has one that's full of her underwear and the padlocks that she sells to school-aged children. There's a, like, Daniel Ellsberg-looking guy who has government secrets that he has stolen. And then... There's an old lady who has a bunch of jewels. And so some people are trying to steal the jewels. Some people are trying to steal the government secrets. Some people are accidentally stealing the padlocks and the rocks. So this scene just ends in chaos. And then basically we cut- It fades to black. It cut to the next day when Howard is invited to Laramie's house for a party. Now, of course, the big thing that happens in the midst there is the invitation comes in the form of a letter. Howard is told that he has to leave the hotel- He gets in the elevator, tries to go to the lobby. Instead, it goes up to the top floor, which is under construction. And while he's there, he finds a a piano under a sheet. And also under the sheet is Judy lying there, like, seductively, ready to start singing as soon as it's unveiled. Yeah, it's strange how I guess she planned it by pushing the 31st floor button. But it, like, requires her to know that he's gonna get in the elevator at that right time. It's very strange. But I also believe that Howard is too dumb to know that L means lobby and 31 means 31st floor. Right. So she is still trying to seduce him. She gets him to sing as time goes by with her and then gives him this note that was slipped under the door the night before when she was getting ready for her bath. That is, as you said, the invitation to the party at Larrabee's where he will presumably be given the grant. And in excitement over that, they start making out and I believe have sex. It's unclear. I think the reaction from the construction guy who is so amazed by what's going on that his jaw drops and his cigar falls into the bucket of paint. I think from that we are meant to assume that they are like full on banging on the floor here. Yeah, it's the only explanation for that level of reaction. But this brings us to point four, which is centered around the chase, but it all comes to a head at Laramie's party. It's Matt. Is something the matter? Wrong case. Identical traveling cases. (laughs) Sweet, isn't it? Laramie, by the way, is played by Austin Pendleton, who I know and love best as Max from the Muppet movie, 
who works for the evil businessman who wants Kermit the Frog to be the mascot for his frog leg restaurants. Yes. So Laramie also has made it clear how much he likes Burnsy. So he does invite Judy to come to the party. Yeah. Howard's plan at this point is he and Judy will arrive at the party. Eunice will also come to the party and Howard will just explain the misunderstanding. Like Howard thinks that if he explains like Eunice is my fiance, Judy is this random lady who's been hounding me. We've kind of come to like each other. We had sex earlier today. Um, (laughs) We're all on the same page here. You know, she still supports me. You should support me. Please give me the grant. Of course, we see later in the movie, in the courtroom scene, that Howard is entirely incapable of explaining anything that's happened in any sort of coherent way. I mean, it is a pretty tough story to explain, and the judge is doing him no favors, because the judge is, like, absolutely refusing to try and follow along. Yes. He's not quite the, like, trial of the Chicago 7 racist judge, but he is approaching similar levels of incompetence. Yeah, he is a bad judge. So Eunice is sent to the gangsters, who find that their suitcase is full of rocks and not diamonds. And then the other people realize they have Judy's undergarments. And Howard, I think, has his hands on the diamonds. And they all end up at Laramie's party. There's a big shootout. This is where the chase scene happens through the streets of San Francisco. Judy and Howard have taken every bag, which was a a choice. I love that. I love when they say, like, we don't know which bag is ours. We'll just take all of them right now. Yeah. So they have all the bags. They are chased through the streets of San Francisco, and eventually they all crash, and the cops bring them all to court. Where it seems like they largely get off on the grounds that the judge is Judy's dad. Yeah, that's the implication, I think. And then this brings us to point five, when Howard and Eunice are at the airport. Um, Howard, I've asked Eunice to stay on with me for a few days. In separate quarters, of course. Of course. We've shared a great deal in the past day or so, and I think perhaps, well, you know what I mean. Well, goodbye, Howard. You better hurry or you'll miss your plane. Yeah, uh, we get the courtroom. We got the revelation that the judge is Judy's dad. We cut to the airport. Howard's leaving, heading back to Iowa. Somehow Eunice and Laramie are now in love? Yeah, uh, unclear why. I think they were trapped in a car together during the car chase sequence. They were kidnapped as one. And they have now found each other, which is weird because the fact that Larrabee so loved Judy and, like, her fast-talking mania makes it seem like he would be an ill fit for Eunice. But Eunice has, I guess, cracked the whip and Larrabee feels that he needed that. Yeah. He needs the structure. But Howard is now going to fly back alone. He sees Judy there who is saying she's going to go to college again. Judy has been to, like, 20 different colleges. She has failed out of all of them, but at the same time become, like, a master of every subject that she majored in at each one of them. Right. So she's, like, good at math and everything. Like, fast mental math. Also, like, knows a ton about geology and, like, any subject that you bring up. Right. But then when Howard is turned around to deal with Eunice, she slips off and Howard is sad because he'll never see her again. And he hops on a plane back to Ames, where he overhears a voice explaining that she is going to a new school in Ames, which is a music conservatory, where she's very excited because she knows a professor. And what I love is they cut, and she's talking to an old woman with headphones very firmly in her ears and pointedly ignoring her. Yes, that old woman is me on planes. Yeah, I hate when people try and talk to me on planes. Uh, Here's a fun fact. Just because you see a teacher grading next to you on a plane doesn't mean they want to talk to you. They certainly don't want to hear your opinions on teachers who are too mean or whatever. Oh my god. The things people think 
are prompts for further discussion. Anyway, Howard announces to Judy that he's in love with her. Luckily, there's nobody behind him, so he can fully recline his seat so they can make out, which is rude on a plane. Yeah. So they make out and then cut to credits. At one point, Judy does say, love means never having to say you're sorry, and Howard tells her it's stupid. That is a quote from the movie Love Story for which Ryan O'Neill got an Oscar nomination. Which is very stupid advice. It is very stupid advice. Love means you should be very willing to admit your mistakes and apologize. Right. All right, so anyway, after watching all of this saga unfold, do you find the romance of What's Up Doc believable? Absolutely not. There, Absolutely not. There is no reason that they should be in love at all. It's absurd to imagine that they are in love in any meaningful way, and Howard's gonna die. Uh, do you remember what we rated bringing up baby? I don't, but I can look it up. Because I do- Just go to, go to the spreadsheet of all of our ratings. I do think it will be an interesting comparison. Uh, bringing up baby, we each gave a one, two. Okay, so then this definitely deserves a zero. Um, you know, I can, I can give this a zero. I do think it makes no sense. Judy is a malevolent force of chaos who has destroyed Howard's sanity, and somehow that is endearing to him and he pronounces his love. But there's even the minor loves. Like, it doesn't make sense that Eunice and Larrabee are together at the end. Yeah, that is a good addition. There's no reason for them to have fallen in love. So, yeah, zero. Zero. Do you think that Howard or Judy is dateable? I think it's pretty clear from our discussion. The malevolent force thing, Judy is debatably an attempted murderer. Howard, of course, (laughs) is a death trap. I don't have the time to manage Howard. No, no one has the time or energy for that. Do you think that Howard and Judy will stay together? I don't think he has a choice. I don't think he will make any decisions for the rest of his life. Right. So they will. Now, that life might be very short, but for its duration, I think they will be together. One thing that we didn't mention that I really liked about this movie is the old woman offered a $20,000 reward for the return of her jewels and then very realistically explains how that money is broken down in the damages caused by the chase and how she's right, paid they each them wind off. up getting like five bucks or something yeah i was like oh they actually addressed all the chaos caused by their actions that was very funny so if you did have to pick someone in this movie to date who would you choose i had a hard time with this one i think though that my answer is going to be the old woman She's clearly rich, which is nice, but that's not why I want to date her. Um, I want to date her because she is clearly diligent and resilient. The way that she tracks down all those people, I think, would have taken a lot of work. She's very responsible in doing that and also in tracking all of the expenses. But she also, like, can react well and persistently to challenges, like when she keeps beating off that dude who tries to trip her every two steps down the hallway. Right. I was also going to choose her, because I also like that she knows how to add a touch of drama when she screams, my jewels, as she sprints to the hotel after she realizes the theft. Now, the last question, Mark, many of the movies we've watched have been adapted into stage musicals. Do you think that should happen to What's Up Doc? I think that adding any other element to this movie would make it even more chaotic and difficult to follow and would be a bad choice. That is the correct opinion. Because also it's centered on a giant chase scene through the streets of San Francisco, which would be very hard to replicate. Right. And I don't think the movie needs someone to come up with an alternative to it. Right. So I think that about does it for our discussion of What's Up Doc. I'm glad we got to take a look at it. Next week, we will be discussing our first Lifetime original movie, a September of 2020 release, Pool Boy Nightmare. So you really got into these Lifetime movies last summer. 
I have never seen any of them except for this one. Yeah, I think it's better to watch definitely in a crowd and with a drink in your hand. All right. Well, Pool Boy Nightmare is available to stream for free on Hoopla, so you can head on over and do that to be ready for us next week. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help other people to find the show. All right, Will. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from this movie? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, I guess just, like, be the most you version of yourself because that seems to work both for Judy and for Eunice. I guess my advice is be so helpless that somehow it's endearing enough that someone is willing to take over your life. (laughs) All right, if that's what you want. (laughs) Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye-bye. In all the towns, in all the world, he walks into mine. Play a champ. I don't, uh... You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fun.